Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Okay, um, all right, are we more or less ready emotionally? This is going to be an unusually unhinged episode of the argument because, like, I think collectively we've gotten, you've gotten, like, three hours of sleep, maybe. I've gotten, like, four. And, Ross, you have small children. I don't know what you do. I drove them to school. Ross hasn't slept since, like, 2007. (laughs) All right. It's the argument. I'm Jane Coaston. I'm joined by Times Opinion columnist Ross Douthit. Hey, Jane. And Times editorial board member Michelle Cottle. Jane, how are you? I am here and I'm awake. So, good morning. We're recording this the morning after the election, though results are still coming in. So let's talk about the results or what we know so far. We are leaning into uncertainty. We are falling face forward into uncertainty. But as we record, control of both houses of Congress is too close to call. Which is, I think, not what Democrats or Republicans were expecting like 24 hours ago. So I want to start with top line thoughts. And Michelle, I want to start with you. From what we know right now, what stands out to you? What stands out is that Democrats overperformed the expectation game. They totally won the expectation game. What we're looking at is an electorate that is feeling unsettled and Neither party made the case that they were going to provide the strength, stability, normalcy to create a wave election. And that was really incumbent upon Republicans because the dynamics of a midterm tend to favor the out party. And that was what people were kind of expecting. So I was surprised that the Democrats managed to get their folks to turn out after all the talk we heard about, you know, not enthusiastic, disaffected, blah, blah, blah. Blah. However true that was, it, they still did better than everybody expected. Ross, what about you? Yeah, I mean, this feels in certain ways like the 2020 presidential election in reverse. You know, the the underlying reality is sort of stalemate and stasis. And a lot of people assumed that, you know, in 2020, that Trump was sufficiently unpopular and COVID was sufficiently terrible and his response to it was sufficiently disastrous that you were finally going to get the Democratic landslide that people had been expecting Trump to generate. Mm -hmm. And then instead, the Democrats, you know, won, (laughs) um, but sort of disappointed expectations. Uh, And here you have the reverse where I mean, the assumptions have obviously changed repeatedly. The narrative in our profession has switched back and forth. Uh, you know, the Dobbs decision was going to turn the red wave into a blue wave. And, and oh, no, the polls have turned and it's going to be a red wave after all. But if, at the end, the assumption which I sort of resisted, resisted but ultimately bought into was that inflation and everything associated with the unpleasant times was going to be enough to give Republicans a pretty clear victory. Uh, And instead, we have a true stalemate. You know, the the control of the Senate will hinge potentially on a runoff in Georgia and or, you know, 10,000 votes in Nevada. 
the house may be literally Marjorie Taylor Greene, maybe the Joe Manchin <laughs> of the House of House of Representatives when all is said and done. So yes, sort of in both elections, maybe more so in this one, but in both elections, big factors that seemed to be poised to generate big swings instead have been sort of limited and mitigated by by the politics of stalemate. <laughs> that is sort of a defining feature of our politics right now. So Michelle is unsettled and Ross is thinking stalemate. And my thought, I mean, again, there's a lot we don't know, but the results seem largely in the middle and a lot more uncertain than what I expected. But Democrats had a better night than many Democrats expected. So I want to talk about a couple of the key races we do know. Michelle, who had the best night? Who had the best night? Well, Fetterman, I think, was really, really iffy going in, largely because of his health issues, and managed to get called last night. So I think he's feeling pretty good this morning. Maggie Hassan in New Hampshire, people were starting to get very twitchy about. And going into this whole cycle, she was probably the most or one of the most endangered Democratic incumbents in the Senate, and she didn't have any troubles. So I think both of them are feeling pretty good this morning. Ross, what about you? Ron DeSantis, 1,000%. The night could not have possibly worked out better for DeSantis's ambition to rule the United States of America with an iron fist someday. I mean, this goes to your point, Jane, about it being sort of a muddle of a night. The Republicans did incredibly well in Florida. Mm -hmm. The Florida race looked like the red wave that people were anticipating. Republicans won Hispanics. They rolled up big totals in blue areas. And, you know, whether that's all due to the genius of Ron DeSantis or to 16 other factors is a question we'll be arguing about for a while. Mm -hmm. But for DeSantis's presidential ambitions, having him do so well while not just the national GOP, but Trump-endorsed candidates basically struggled to win winnable races, that gives him all that he could have hoped for as a narrative going into a presidential campaign in 2024. He can say, look, it should have been a red wave, and if it had been the DeSantis Republican Party, it would have been so pick me. And if you listen carefully, Jane, that noise you hear is Donald Trump waking up and grinding his teeth over the DeSantis outcome because this is absolutely someone he cannot bear the thought of challenging him because he considers Ron DeSantis his creature. So, I mean, I have a lot more thoughts on this, but the amount of conservative hopium with regard to Ron DeSantis of like, leave him behind, leave Trump behind. And I'm like, yes, famously, Donald Trump listens to signals from conservative <laughs> elites. That's a thing we've all said about him. None of the none of the conservatives saying this are expecting Donald Trump to listen to us. I think DeSantis's stock is so overvalued, Ross. I think this is going to turn out to be a Scott Walker sort of thing. Okay, but let me break in. Ross, who had the worst night? I mean, Donald Trump. Obviously, you know, it's you could say it's worse to to lose a race than to have your grip on the Republican Party weaken. And in that sense, you could say, you know, Dr. Oz had the worst night. So if you if I was picking a candidate, a particular candidate, I would say Oz. But in terms of the the overall landscape of Republican politics, uh, it was just it was a very bad night for Trump. Michelle, who had the worst night? I will go with, let's say, maybe Mitch McConnell combo 
little bit Kevin McCarthy. I mean, McCarthy will still likely have the House, but he was really hoping for a bigger margin so he wouldn't be held hostage by, like, Marjorie Taylor Greene. And Mitch McConnell is sitting at home going, oh, my God, if I hadn't have had to deal with Herschel Walker and Dr. Oz and some of these other candidates that Trump handed him, he would absolutely have been in a better position. So, you know, it wasn't terrible for them. You've got to go with McCarthy, though, out of those two. Yeah, I mean, because McCarthy Mitch McConnell is, will ugh. continue to enjoy himself as <laughs> the leader of a 50-vote or 49-vote Republican minority, whereas if Kevin McCarthy is speaker, he will be the most miserable human being in America under these conditions. Marjorie Taylor Greene will see to that. <laughs> I would personally argue that pundits with weirdo 2016 PTSD had the worst night because the degree <laughs> to which literally any good thing happening to Democrats was like, here's why it's actually terrible for Democrats, <laughs> and anything at all, But I do want to go back to Florida because Republicans had big wins in Florida with victories for both Ron DeSantis and Marco Rubio, which to me says less about Ron DeSantis and more about Republicans in Florida. Florida is no longer a purple state. So what does this indicate about how Republicans prioritized issues in Florida? And Michelle, what do you think drove the red wave there? Is it because all the New Yorkers moved? Is that what happened? Old people, Jane. There's (laughs) so many old people, old people vote Republican. I do think we need to abandon the idea that Florida is still a true swing state. It's just, it's not. If you want to look at its legislature or Mm -hmm. any of this stuff. And then DeSantis has helped move it along with, you know, his redistricting battle. And he has an iron grip on state government there, which means he projects strength. People on the whole were not really unhappy with his pandemic Mm -hmm. stewardship. And governors who could make that argument to their populace did pretty well this time around. So as far as like the Rubio-Dimmings race goes, that was going to be a stretch because of the fact that Florida is no swing state like it used to be. So I I do agree that it's not about DeSantis. He did solidly. He is Mm -hmm. a national figure. His, you know, the the party likes that in the state, but it is just more broadly what's happening in Florida. I mean, all right, but look, Ron DeSantis won his race by 19.4 points, right, in a state that Donald Trump carried by a much, much narrower margin, and that DeSantis himself only won incredibly narrowly uh, against Andrew Gillum in, you know, what was admittedly a Democratic wave year but, but in, Ross, in 2018. Could, can, can, I, can I just jump in very quickly? Could this also be because Charlie Crist is not very good at this? <laughs> I mean, the view that Charlie Crist is not very good at this is also conditioned on the changing politics of Florida. I am old enough to remember when Charlie Crist was considered a very effective Florida politician who Republicans were crazy to primary and boot out of the party, right? I mean, I yes, Crist was not an incredibly good candidate overall, but I do think you have to look at the DeSantis victory and say that it isn't just that Florida changed, it was that the moves that DeSantis made, the particular balance that he did of being the COVID reopening guy, the culture war guy, and, you know, the economic pragmatist who knew how to run the state during a hurricane was really, really effective. Now, I I have no idea if that translates effectively 
to the national stage. I'm just um, saying that two years out, you wind up with candidates who are talked about like they're the next Jesus and then don't really. <laughs> it's just too early to tell. And when people talk about DeSantis as Trump without the crazy, they also fail to mention that he's Trump without the charisma, which matters less as a governor than as a presidential candidate. People don't vote for presidents. They vote for kind of boyfriends or whoever makes a tingle run up their leg. And DeSantis will have to deal with trying to be a demagogue without a demagogue's magnetism. So he has a lot of challenges in order to get where he's going, especially if he's trying to do it over, you know, the body of Trump on some level in 2024. I 100% agree. And I would, if you forced me to place a bet on Trump versus DeSantis, I would still bet on Trump. Look around your business and see inefficiency everywhere. So you should know these numbers. 37,000, the number of businesses which have upgraded to the number one cloud financial system, NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite just turned 25. That's 25 years of helping businesses streamline their finances and reduce costs. One, because your unique business deserves a customized solution, and that's NetSuite. Learn more when you download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist absolutely free at netsuite.com matter. That's netsuite.com matter. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I absolutely love Spelling Bee. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. So those are the candidates. Let's talk about the issues now. I think going in, there was a big debate about what would be driving voters to the polls. Would it be to, quote unquote, save democracy or stop inflation or protect abortion rights or stop crime? Because that's a thing midterms can do. So what do you think now, Michelle? What, do you, what was the message that you think may have won out? Well, that's one of the reasons why I think of this as a race that people were unsettled about because I obviously inflation is a huge issue. When you talk to the people who do all the polling, they have that as the lead issue in so many states that you would have thought. I mean, that's one of the reasons people thought Republicans were just going to crush. On the other hand, you did have an uptick in women turning out and registering mm-hmm. to vote after Dobbs. And with crime, again, this speaks to, like, the feeling people don't really think Republicans are going to solve crime. They don't really—they're just unsettled, and they're uncomfortable, and they want somebody to make them feel better. And clearly, the Republican Party— failed to convey that stability. I mean, in part because they nominated a bunch of, you know, round-the-bend loonies in a lot of cases that made people more anxious about 
whether there'd be political violence, whether, like, democracy would crumble. That didn't poll well as a, is this your top concern? I mean, the Times a few days before the race, or a few weeks before the race or whatever, had talked to people about this, and people were like, yeah, I'm worried about democracy reform, but I'm more worried about X. Mm -hmm. So... But even if it wasn't foremost in their mind, again, added to this whole kind of sense of, geez, I don't really feel right, and I just—and nobody's speaking to that. Right. Yeah, the the vibes issue. Um, on abortion, Ross, abortion was on the ballot in referenda in five states. The pro-choice option won in four states so far, including Kentucky and Michigan, Vermont, and California. So— what do you think that tells us, or does it tell us anything about um, how voters feel about abortion or abortion access, especially when it's separated from a partisan politician's platform? Yeah, I mean, I think it indicates essentially what pro-lifers who <laughs> were serious about looking at public opinion already knew, which is that the pro-life cause is less popular than the political coalition to which it's attached. Um, I mean, it's complicated. What, what's interesting is that at this moment, the Kentucky and Michigan numbers are running relatively similar, mm -hmm. uh, even though Michigan is a bluer state than Kentucky. And that's sort of a small indicator of how, I mean, they're, they're slightly different or not slightly, they're, they're quite different referenda too. You could argue that that makes all the difference. But I, I do think it's sort of an indicator that, you know, there might be both more pro-choice sentiment in some red states than you'd expect, and also sometimes a little more pro-life sentiment in some bluer states that, like, below the partisan level, the things are a little more complicated there, too. But overall, I think the message of the cycle is that voters are willing to, voters in reddish states are willing to let pro-lifers legislate and not punish them heavily for that. So you can sign, uh, you know, a heartbeat law if you're Mike DeWine in Ohio and cruise to re-election. You can sign a similar law in Georgia if you're Brian Kemp and win re-election easily, right? There isn't some sort of big punishment for Republicans doing that kind of legislation yet. But on an up-down question, the voters are more pro-choice. So before we end, I want to talk about the bigger story that we can tell about the midterms so far, with the note that we don't know a lot of information. I think the way that we talk about midterms is that there's some sort of tea leaves that can predict what's going to happen in the next election in 2024, or can tell us something bigger about our national mood. And I don't know if the midterms tell us a national story. I think they tell us a patchwork of local stories. But now that every local race now feels like it has national stakes, it feels as if Every local race matters, and I wonder if that's played into what has happened in this election, in which we are seeing new players being created in the parties. But, Michelle, on the Democratic side, we got Maryland governor-elect Wes Moore. On the Republican side, there's still Carrie Lake in the Arizona gubernatorial race, which is still too close to call. There are a bunch of new characters that we seem to now have in politics and a bunch of people who... I think that we're going to be hearing a lot more about, sometimes non-consensually, for the next two to six years. Um, so are there is there anyone else on that list that you're interested in or people who are not Ron DeSantis, anybody that's like, this is a new name that you think that we're going to be hearing about? 
Okay, I'm, I'm going to ignore that question and go farther down okay. the food chain. So what I had gotten excited about this cycle was like the attention being paid to Secretary of State races and Attorney General's races, so, you know, in part because people were worried about the stop the steal stuff and things like that. But the Democratic Party in particular has had a miserable time building a farm team. And so then when it comes time for federal races, they didn't have a deep bench. And it would be great for everyone involved if both parties, but, you know, you kind of feel it's more incumbent even upon the Democrats because they, in theory, represent the party of youth and change and progress to get a lot more new faces into the mix so that you're not looking at an entire leadership that, you know, qualified for AARP (laughs) 60 years ago or whatever. I'm just saying that anything that is injecting fresh blood and helping build a farm team is something that I'm going to get excited about. So I'm hoping that this will become a thing. You can get people to pay attention to lower down the ballot. And then I will, you know, have all these great names that we'll be looking at going forward. But I think Gretchen Whitmer automatically, by winning her race again, becomes somebody that people will be looking at even more going forward. So there's one name for you. Uh, Gretchen Whitmer, governor of Michigan. Um, I'm interested, especially with Whitmer and a couple of other Democrats who won big. It turns out that the COVID restrictions did not seem to play nearly as big a role in these races as I think a lot of people either thought they would or kind of chanted to themselves and hoped that they would. Whitmer especially, but a host of other Democrats who they had really strict COVID policies and they got reelected. But My last question is, our colleague Ezra Klein brought up an interesting point in the live blog, which he got from three political scientists who wrote this book, uh, The Bitter End. The idea is that what we're seeing in the election results is calcification, that these results are they're very similar to 2016 because nobody changes their minds about anything. Gore versus Bush, Clinton versus Trump, Biden versus Trump, all super close elections. And this is one where, you know, if you watch Fox News this morning— Everyone is like, how could there not be a red wave right now? Everything is happening that would in any other universe cause a red wave. So, Ross, do you think that the era of like big swingy winds is over? My own theory of American politics has been that you get a bunch of different dynamics, the challenges of successful governance, the polarization of the parties, the relative efficiency of political operatives, like at sort of vacuuming up available votes, not sort of leaving votes on the table. All of these different things converge to create dynamics where it's really hard to build large, durable majorities. Um, Now, what we've seen within that dynamic is a pretty swingy House and Senate, House especially, right? So I guess you could argue that this result suggests we're getting even more calcified because we don't even get that sort of, you know, 30-seat swing that you would expect. But fundamentally, American politics awaits some kind of political entrepreneur slash statesman who is capable of breaking our politics out of this pattern. Uh, and in spite of all my touting of Ron DeSantis, I don't, I don't see any reason to think DeSantis, <laughs> DeSantis is that guy. Uh, I'm quite sure Biden 2024 isn't that guy. So, yeah, calcification seems likely to continue in some way. Michelle, what do you think? Is everything going to be weird and close and swingy for the rest of our lives? 
No. I, don't, I think <laughs> anytime you're talking about is politics going to be X forever, like politics goes through cycles. It's just like on a smaller level, the House does its pendulum thing. I mean, the American public does tend to be thermostatic is the nice term for it. Fickle and suffering from buyer's remorse is the other one in midterms. But, you know, there's always extenuating circumstances that will tweak things one way or the other. You know, there are these weird events, and we just went through this massive pandemic on top of, you know, having a president who was a anti-democratic force advocating for, you know, political violence. So you just don't know. I, I understand trends, and I understand, like, kind of— an evenly divided country where politics has become a cultural identifier and you you vote more on your team than policies or anything like that but i don't i don't ever think it's a good idea to say it's going to be like x you know enduringly michelle ross given that it is wednesday morning the night after an election and there are lots of results still to come in we can go for another hour jane <laughs> i mean we can't we can't we're ready i'm going to need Mich- more coffee ross <laughs> thank you both for coming and helping me sort through what we know so far. There's no one I'd rather suffer with, Jane. (laughs) Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Ross. Thank you for having us. Michelle Cottle is a member of the Times Editorial Board, and Ross Douthat is a Times Opinion columnist. The Argument is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Phoebe Lett, Vishaka Durba, and Derek Arthur. Edited by Alison Brujak and Annabelle Bacon. With original music by Isaac Jones and Pat McCusker. Mixing by Pat McCusker. Fact-checking by Kate Sinclair, Michelle Harris, and Mary Marge Locker. Audience strategy by Shannon Busta, with editorial support from Christina Samuluski. Special thanks to Amber Von Chassen. When everyone is on the same page, getting things done is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that enables your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said. Done.